0: Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Ravlik. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Entities issue financial statements, whether they be listed entities, not-for-profit entities, uh, even governments. But it's very rare that people contemplate what goes on in developing the standards or the guidance that sets in place what these entities must do, how they must present and prepare financial statements. Uh one of the things that happens is standards get developed, and they get developed at a very, very sophisticated level, and they do get developed globally. I'm joined today in a, for a very special conversation with Andreas Sparkout, who is the new chairman of the International Accounting Standards Board, which is the global standard centre for accounting standards. Australia and other countries adopt those standards, and tweak applications slightly or add a little bit of information. But the ISB's work is the chassis upon which financial reporting is built for many, many countries. And uh, the chairman of the ISB will take us through what the ISB does, uh, how many countries he actually has to consult when he does things, and what the key projects are. Andreas, thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, You already alluded to the fact that um, we are the global standard setter indeed. Um, Up to date, um, it it will be around 144 jurisdictions that have signed up to our standards. Um, So two thirds uh, or more of the globe is actually serviced uh, by our reporting requirements. And we believe that this um, allows us to call ourselves really a global standard setter uh, and thereby helping uh, investors that act in global markets. So that is really the key objective for us. Um, We look into what information is needed by providers of capital, uh, by their agents being asset managers, for instance, um, or by analysts. And um, we constantly assess our suite of requirements that have been built over a period for now 35 odd years or so, um, whether there is a gap in the literature, and if there was a gap in the literature, we would start or at least consider working on such a project. Now, the process actually is not so different uh, from what people might be more familiar with uh, being how laws come into existence. So usually, um, there is a reported as a, a incident or evidence of something that has to be regulated. Um, we hold that our work is evidence-based. So we, we don't just start work because we think this would be fancy to work on. Um, but really, we want to see evidence that really there is an issue. And that issue cannot be um, appropriately addressed by referring to the existing literature. It then goes on a project plan and um, we allocate staff to such a project. The staff would do the basic research, would say, what is the issue? What comes with the issue? uh, What areas in terms of financial reporting do we have to address? Is that a disclosure issue that can be addressed through narratives? Is Is this something that uh, involves valuation and measurement. Obviously, then more thinking has to go into the processes. We would look into cross-cutting issues like taxation or like impairment or other narratives that exist to then scope out a project plan uh, very much as you do, um, as you embark on a bigger project or, as I said, um, as you craft a law. Um, And then um, we would usually take it in milestones. So the first step in our program would be what we call a request for information. If it is a really big project or if it is uh, somewhat confined, we would publish a discussion paper where we sketch our understanding um, of the issue and our thinking as to how we want to progress through the standard. We then go to market, as you say, we consult with uh, our stakeholders. It is not by ringing them or contacting them by mail, but it's really there. We we, um, uh, advertise that through various um, communication uh, channels and we really seek um, feedback from around the globe, specifically, of course, from those jurisdictions that have signed up to our work, but uh, we invite any feedback wherever it may come from. And then we take it from there uh, through the next stages. Now, before I, I talk you to death, let me just um, pause here and ask whether um, you have any questions so far in that regard.
0: I think the the important thing for, for listeners to understand is that there are in excess of 140 countries that deal with the IASB, for the most part, the standard setters in those jurisdictions play a, a role in helping harness uh, the opinions of, of their stakeholders and then pass them on to the ISB. How does that uh, How does that work um, in 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 practice for you? Because there's there's quite a lot of material to process. Absolutely right.
1: So. Um, I think the the information uh, channel or the communication channel that that we use is we work a lot with national standard setters. Um, so you mentioned the double ASB in Australia to be one of that. Um, um, we go through those national standard setters to act as our eyes and ears on the ground. They know their constituency much better than we could probably ever be. So. Um, We inform them as to what we are seeking uh, opinions on and advice on, and they then take the product to their market and um, seek feedback. Often we would do that jointly. Uh, We call those outreach events. These could be done online or could be done physically once COVID is over uh, or or the pandemic um, um, at least contained to a degree that it would uh, facilitate and allow for having physical meetings. Um, And we then begin to get into a discussion um, with stakeholders. So it could be company representatives. It could be the audit profession. It could be regulators. It could be users of financial statements. So we really seek feedback from all channels. so national standard setters will be one avenue to deal with that, but then you obviously you also do have industry organisations. So the banking federation, for instance, or you do have investor fora like Cruff uh, or the CFA Institute that um, assemble quite a few people behind them. We will talk to these organizations as well. They act as amplifiers. Um, so they understand what we are doing because they're monitoring our work. And I think they have the interpretative skills to actually take that work and present it to their constituency using words that they understand um, and giving it focus where it really matters. So that's the key way how we deal that, uh, how we deal with the profession and um, and, and with other stakeholders.
0: There's also uh, some interesting other other aspects of stakeholder management as well, aren't there? Because you're uh, you've been involved in the European scene a fair bit with with. Uh, uh, aspect of EFRAC, and in your own country in Germany, given your role in, in one of the major firms, um, how important is understanding of various cultural backgrounds, whether it be, you know, the various European countries or uh, you know, things that go on in Australia and New Zealand, which are weird to the rest of the world, and... Um, yeah, you know, and, and in Asia, how critical is the understanding of culture?
1: I think it is tremendously important, and you're obviously talking to my to one of my hobby horses, um, because I I would hold the view that um, financial reporting is often characterised as the language which business use in order to communicate with stakeholders, which is certainly true, but the language may not be the same all over the world, right? Even now we speak English, but there is Australian English, there is Canadian English, there's British English, there's US English, whatever it is. And then obviously you do have quite a a number of jurisdictions for whom English is not the mother tongue at all. Um, But that's just the linguistic part of the equation. You alluded to culture, and I think very rightly so. So I think if, we, uh, if I apply my um, academic hat to this, I would say that financial reporting, as we know, it probably follows a neoclassic economic model, right? A, a, a certain way how to do business. and that is, um in um, that is rooted um, a number of different concepts. For instance, the concept of time value of money and discounting. Now, if you just think of that particular aspect for a moment Mm -hmm. and appreciate that our literature probably has in half of its standards a notion of time value of money and discounting or accretion, and then you get to a culture for which charging interest is a no-go area, then you might wonder, okay, how would that fit, right? So we probably um, need a different articulation of that very same principle in order to make that fit that particular culture. And that's certainly an extreme example, but it's probably one that everybody uh, and certainly the yeah. listeners of your podcast would, would easily understand.
0: It's a different so it's, a difference between what we would call a Western model of finance and, and Islamic finance, for example.
1: Exactly. Absolutely. And, and, and um, there may be many more issues like that, even if I don't take it to, to the extreme of cultures, but um, um, if I just refer to different economic environments and staying with interest just for the, for the second, my country is probably one of four or five in the world where the phenomenon of negative interest rates exists, right? Given um, that um, the um, central banks have flooded the market with cheap money, that has had a very dampening aspect uh, and and effect on on interest rates. And in my country, the the 10-year yield is actually in negative territory. So I don't know whether you've ever tried to discount something with a negative interest rate. Surely you can do the mathematics uh, and it will yield you a number. But the question is, does that number actually have any meaning? Does that make sense? Right. Because if you discount with a negative value, it means that the present value of that, what you're discounting is actually higher than the notion of the amount. So that makes some people pause. Now, if they... If, if we in Germany, for instance, now teamed up with Switzerland and, and the Netherlands, where this phenomenon is present as well, and asked the ISB, could you do something uh, to do standard setting? Well, they would probably say, is this really a prevalent issue for the entire globe? And um, it would be very quick to say, probably not. So let's park that. But I think it is important to understand that Whenever you get feedback from a German constituency on a subject matter that encompasses discounting or accretion or time value of money, you need to know ah, that's a letter that's coming from a jurisdiction where negative interest rates do prevail or do exist. And that might inform me as to what other factors do I have to take into account, right? So it is culture, it is economic environment, it may be legal system, it may be history, it may be all sorts of things that um, th- that you would have to to investigate and not just take whatever response comes as face value, but you nearly need to try to understand as to okay, why is that person making that comment?
0: Well, uh, you've also got different ways in which. Our topics can be dealt with at the ISB. Uh, you've obviously got your main agenda, which is the 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 building of new standards or the revising of existing ones. But you've also got the scope for dealing with an issue like the one you've just raised on on negative well, on of negative discounting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that can go to the interpretations body.
1: It could. That's that's absolutely right. Now, the Interpretations Committee is um, our body that deals um, predominantly with the topic of consistent application and consistent implementation. So, it is it is not acting as a rapid task force that would address issues that haven't been foreseen but require solution. Um, It is really there to say, look, the standard is very principles based. I do have a particular issue and I'm not quite sure as to how I should read the words um, in order in applying the standard in the way that you anticipated, because there are different views as to what I can do. So an issue comes to the interpretations committee and the interpretations committee would be quote unquote, the chief arbitrator in that regard to say, okay, um, from uh, our understanding of the existing literature, this is what what the answer really should be. Now, the interpretations committee doesn't opine on very fact-specific, entity-specific fact patterns. It tries to take the fact pattern that's being submitted and tries to generalize it to a degree that It cannot be referred back to the entity that had actually asked and inquired with us. But Mm -hmm. um, that's that's really the the, the key purpose of it. Now, should there be an issue that has been flagged, and I give you one other example that has been raised with us, which was how do I um, account for holdings of crypto assets, of cryptocurrencies? Now, that's obviously a question that's now um, uh, stimulating debate all around the globe. Yes. Um, but um, the interpretations committee had then a look into our requirements and came to the conclusion that provided, um, uh, based on the, the, the facts and circumstances provided to it, it would probably be most appropriate To classify that particular type of cryptocurrency or crypto asset as an intangible asset. Now, they were very cautious in saying that doesn't mean that all cryptos are intangibles. It could well be that some are financial instruments, some others may be securities, yet others may be akin to a gold bullion or something like that, or even be a commodity. So it really depends on the individual fact patterns. Now What then the committee also said is, this may be one to watch for our standard setting board, because there seems to be a variety of different cryptocurrencies, and we are all uh, only asked to look at that particular type of currency that was submitted to us. But there may be others, and we can't ensure that our literature will always get you to an appropriate answer, and where it does not, that may signify uh, an area where the board might want to go and have a look and eventually develop guidance.
0: That segues into another important question that that is worthwhile contemplating, Andreas, and that is how do you um, uh, see the standard setters As a general proposition, coping with technology because in regulation, certainly here in Australia, I've noticed over the years that there is a regulatory lag, something new comes along and there is a lag in regulation. Um, And all sorts of mischief can happen between something emerging and and legislators dealing with it and then regulators coming to terms with what they've got to do to enforce the law. How, how is that the reality um, for someone sitting in the chair you're sitting in now?
1: I think, Tom, it's a valid, very good question. And I think our our situation, uh, to begin with, is probably not much different to, uh, to regulators or policymakers, because if something new arises that hadn't been foreseen when a particular piece of legislation or our accounting requirements have been drafted, um, you might first think, oh, there's a loophole, right? Uh, There's a gap in the literature. Now, uh, our literature actually does have a general principle as to what you then do. Um, It has a standard, which is IAS 8 on accounting policies, uh, which um, comes with a so-called hierarchy. And the hierarchy would ask you to run your specific question uh, through a certain sequence of requirements. So the first go-to point would be the existing literature. Is there anything that talks to that particular phenomenon? Now, if it is new and right or has just arisen, there's a high likelihood that, that there is nothing. Okay, so next thing is... Can you draw an analogy from the existing literature to the new phenomenon? (laughs) And quite often you actually can. So it may well be that the specific issue has not been referenced in our literature, but similar phenomena have been referenced and you can analogize to them. So that would then give you a hook to say, okay. my issue is probably not specifically dealt with but this comes reasonably close to x which is regulated so why don't i apply that particular accounting if that is not feasible either you fall back to our conceptual framework which is so so to say the foundation to everything which is an amalgamation of very general principles and concepts now here it probably starts to get very academic and theoretical, um, which is my most practitioners probably uh, shortcut that step a bit and go straight to the last avenue, which would then say, um, is there anything in the world that deals with that particular issue? Is there anything that any other organization, standards center, a legislator had developed in that regard? And if so, is that piece of legislation, regulation, standard, whatever it may be, Mm -hmm. um, has this been built on the same principles as we would set standards? And if so, it would be deemed good enough to actually make use of that. And only if nothing existed, then obviously it would give us um, time to reflect and then act. Now, I should point out, Tom, that, um, and I should probably have have said this uh, when you asked me how our standards developed uh, in your standard uh, standard setting world, um, I will mention it here. Um, The IASB is an organization that has about 150 employees, and I would say um, a bit more than two-thirds, probably or roughly two-thirds, are working on, on technical projects. And it's not that we actually have shelved endless resources so that we can just pull someone out of the shelf and say, oh, here's a new issue. Could you please look at this? So we do have an agenda, and our staff is heavily working on that, meaning that if an urgent issue arises, the board would have to make a judgment call. Is this so dramatic that we actually need to act on it um, now, which would mean that we probably defer some work on an existing standard setting uh, project to free up resources, reallocate, have them deal with this one uh, in order to provide a rapid response. We occasionally do that. We have done that, for instance, during the COVID pandemic Mm -hmm. where um, there had been an issue about um, rent concessions uh, that many um, legislations have put in place where um, they um, have given Landlords the opportunity to actually provide for a, a certain type of concession. Now, that had a, um, a reporting effect. And um, given that the leasing standards is still quite new, um, we, we thought that we might actually help companies facing that issue um, in shortcutting their um, decision making process as to how they account for that concession. Um, And in that regard, helping them. So we usually there is a prescribed analysis, what you have to do if there was a concession, um, which involves quite a lot of work. And we just just said, don't worry. In these particular circumstances, if you do have a concession, we offer you to deal with that in this way, without having to go go through the entire um, uh, thought process. This has been developed on rather short notice. by actually deploying some of our members of staff into that particular area. But that came obviously at the expense of having to pause some of the other existing work.
0: One of the things I'd like to come back to briefly, if I may, uh, we mentioned the conceptual framework. But before we mentioned the conceptual framework, we talked about cryptocurrency. And it's a rather useful illustration to, to say to, to listeners and those who may may come across the conceptual framework for accounting for the first time in this this discussion that you know, people don't buy things for no reason, and when you when you buy cryptocurrency or when somebody buys something, whether it be, be a Bitcoin or Dogecoin or whatever it happens to be, they're doing so for some kind of benefit um and you given that there's an economic transaction that has taken place logic tells you that they've got that they've gotten their hands on an asset because of the definition because the asset definition hinges on that doesn't
1: it it does um, but i would i would like to caveat your answer um, to a certain degree because the thought process as you rightly described it is you first inquire as to the nature of that beast. And you probably come to the conclusion, I've paid for something. So there is an exchange transaction and I yeah. have received something.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Logic okay. would tell you most people don't just give money away, but probably want something back of equal value. So that would tell you probably you have acquired something that has a benefit. So Meets one of the characteristics of what we call an asset, but that in itself would not be sufficient to actually report it and bring it onto the face of the balance sheet. Why not? Because there is a qualification that says you should bring things onto the balance sheet that cannot be reliably measured on a continuous basis. And this is where probably your differentiation between Bitcoin and Dogecoin might be interesting. So Bitcoin, obviously, you could hold the argument, has um, a readily available market number, right? There is a market for Bitcoin. um, So this does not act uh, very much different to a a stock or a security that is listed on the exchange. Mm -hmm. But there may be others for which no market exists. And then it becomes a bit dodgy indeed as to what is the true value? I realize you've spent 10 bucks on this, but how could you really believe that others would equally pay 10 bucks? So it may be of worth for 10 bucks to you, but whether this is a generally accepted number for everyone, we do not know. It may be just you've invested something that you like, but... Um, it's it's probably more piece of art than, than anything else that has credible value, right? So um, that, that would be a good an- analogy in saying, okay, the, the conceptual framework would tell you, does that have a potential that could provide you future benefits? Does it go back to a transaction yes. that you've done in the past? So that would tick the boxes probably, yeah, this is an asset as per our framework, so probably one something that should go uh, into the books of the company. But then you have to do additional um, checks and say, is this reliably measurable? Can I come up with a, with, a, with a certain amount or not? And if I cannot establish, the answer would not be, oh, then forget about it and just shield it from everyone. It yeah. only means don't put it on the balance sheet. But tell me in the notes, provide transparency, tell me what you've acquired, tell me what it is, tell me what you think the number should be, but also elaborate as to, is there a certain range? And this range would then be an indication of why you decided not to put it on a balance sheet. This is in very rough terms, probably the, the thought process that I would run through it.
0: Now... Do- the board has got an agenda. We've spoken a bit about the process of standard setting and then some of the controversies that that have come about when new things emerge. What are the key items that you have on your, on the board's agenda at the moment? Um, the key items are
1: those that stem from um, our last agenda consultation. So let me let me probably provide that background. Every five years. The board goes to market and ask stakeholders in general what, according um, to your views and from your perspective, you think the board should spend resources on and deal with for the next five years. We are currently towards the end of our second agenda item, uh, agenda consultation, and we have launched a new agenda consultation this spring, which runs uh, until the end of this month. And that will inform us as to how we set our work program for 2022 to 2026. So currently we do have an ongoing um, work program where some of the areas um, um, would encompass things like goodwill and impairment, a very heated debate um, about, shall we bring back amortization, yes or no? Um, Is there a better way to inform Um, readers of financial statements about um, the success or non-success of a business combination. Um, Can we do something in order to strengthen the impairment test? Can we do something about um, providing disclosures and more information? That's a very big project that we still have to finalize. Another one um, that we have on our plate is called primary financial statements. It um, is about um, predominantly the income statement and try to provide more structure through the income statement uh, and rigor so that companies cannot just claim uh, what they believe operating profit um, uh, is on a general basis, but it would be on us to actually say we will include a new subtotal and that will become the number to which entities should really defer. So that's something that we have heard loud and clear from the market, that many companies are providing funny numbers, which they then also adjust, amend, um, add back, take out, whatever. And there's virtually no comparability. And our um, standard would actually directly tie to this and talk to it and provide more rigor as to what the format of the income statement should be and what you may duly label operating profit or profit from investing activities and things like that.
0: That's an interesting. That's an interesting project in its own right because when you look at bank financial statements, and I know you're a you're a keen financial instruments person yourself. Um, so perhaps that's uh, but perhaps that's sort of maligning you. But you're a you're, you're a keen financial instruments person. It the banks certainly here in Australia and probably around the world provide in the back of their financial statements in the notes any number of layers. The only thing I don't think they do uh, down here is provide us with a number for you know profit before expenses. They do everything else. <laughs> yeah. What?
1: Well, um, I, I, probably from, from where I sit, um, I, I understand absolutely what you mean. <laughs> um, probably why I haven't seen that so much in the European context, uh, maybe informed by the fact that the European um, Accounting Directive and its offsprings, the banking, Bank's Account Directive and the Assurance Account Directive actually have uh, prescribed formats of uh, bank um, um, financial statements. So you do have templates. And what we have um, seen when IFRSs um, started um, to kick off in Europe in 2005 or 2007, respectively, that many companies have actually retained their templates wherever that made sense. So um, we probably we, we, we I wouldn't say that everything is perfect, picture perfect, certainly not. But there is probably not that vast variety um, of different um, layouts and different formats. And I speak to that and you you speak to that, um, that we are seeing in other parts of the world that I mean, I completely agree with you. Um, If you are an investor that sits in um, uh, Australia, you certainly want to uh, compare uh, your bank's financial statements with those of European counterparts um, and uh, with those that exist, say, in other parts of the world. And it doesn't help you at all um, if you can't really compare a single line item in uh, in the financial statements. And this is really where we hope that we would provide more rigour.
0: It's a, it in presentation is a key it is a key element because that is what people look at. I mean, it, even journalists who report on results probably don't understand very well how the how the numbers the sausage machine that goes into developing the standards that uh, ultimately result in how a company how an entity reports. Um I, I
1: completely agree and I think um working on the presentation is is a very important, very fundamental thing. Now I I should probably be fair and say we still need to recognize that an income statement is an aggregated way of informing readers about the performance of an entire year, right? So I haven't come across an income statement that has maximum say 15 or 20 line items. Now, that's it's very little, very very few uh, pieces of information to tell me exactly what has happened in 364 days around the year. So you probably need further disaggregation. You you can't just look at um at the primary financial statements and on the face. That being said, The face should, of course, still be faithfully reflective of the overall message. So it should give you the prime answer. Have you you actually made a profit or loss? And have you made a profit or loss from operations or through other things? That is the key message that you probably should be getting out of um, um, the face of the income statement, together with a breakdown of, Okay, where have been your uh, your major areas of expense to then allude to the notes to the financial statements, which provide further breakdown. I think one area, Tom, that, that uh, then is quite, would fit quite neatly into this discussion is actually digital reporting. Because you could hold that the times when people actually um, printed or read a financial report and, uh, from, from front end to back end are probably largely over. The majority of readers are either selective in that they are interested in certain areas only or into headline messages, as you said, but they also wanted it in a more digestible way that enables them to compare faster and better. And this then obviously talks to um, the fact that we should really not be thinking of financial reports as a printed document, but rather as something that's available on screen that's available in digital format and that I can go to. And similarly to if you went on the ABC's web page to just pick one company um, and um, searched for news items, um, you get all the headlines on the front page. But if you then see, oh, this reads interesting, you can click on it and then you get more information. And if you then Mm -hmm. open that page, There might be something like related items or other also found interesting, whatever it is. And then you can click further. So if you think about financial reporting in that way, say you get the headline figure, which is called, say, operating profit. And you now want to dig deeper as to, okay, what is that figure comprised of? It would give you a disaggregation in electronic format and say, oh, HR expenses have shot up. What's behind that? And it would give you another click a link and you can click on that and it will provide you with what are the areas actually where expenses have changed. So I think um, what I'm trying to say is there is probably a limit by looking at printed documents or uh, book-like documents, a PDF, for instance, as to how much information you can um, diligently provide, which are without overpowering the reader. Um, and you have to ask yourself as to is this not really better done in an electronic way because it provides for easier uh, disaggregation of information, and rather than saying there's only one way how to read our financial statements, let it be with the um, with a reader uh, who may decide face information is enough for me or I want to go uh, for a deep dive here.
0: What needs to happen to get that, get ourselves uh, globally to a position where digital reporting is is a reality. I know that you've made the observation previously uh, that uh digitization in the accounting world is a little bit behind digitization elsewhere. We don't have financial reporting TikTok, do we? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is that's right, a very nice analogy. Um no, you're absolutely right, we don't have that, and um I think um The first thing that certainly would be beneficial is if all the jurisdictions that have signed up to our standards would equally sign up to our IFRS taxonomy. Now, um, the taxonomy is like a big um, encyclopedia, you could say, uh, that provides for terms which you would add to a piece of financial information. It is a tag. That you would add to that information and the tagging exercise would allow users to apply a certain software that then searches for these tags and allows for the information um, to be displayed in a a comparable and consistent way. Now, um, not all the jurisdictions around the globe actually do have uh, signed up to our taxonomy and do have um, a digital ecosystem that would enable them to do so. Um, What we have found is that the normal way how this is being done probably comes through legislation or uh, prudential oversight or regulatory intervention. So a regulator would say, from now on, we want to receive the information in digital format. And there are 30, 40, maybe 50 jurisdictions around the globe where, where this is being done. And not just for the purpose of helping investors but probably also helping actually other stakeholders like regulators, like enforcers, to get to the information and do drill downs in a a better way uh, that would enable them to do their job more properly. So I think more, more has to be done. And if you say what needs to be done, I think it requires really an acknowledgement by all parties that make up the reporting ecosystem, as I would call it. Um, This is not just for the ISB alone, it requires all stakeholders and those involved in the reporting chain to actually embark on that. So I already mentioned legislators, I mentioned regulators. I also would like to mention the accounting profession, audit the audit companies, because if you're auditing digital information, it requires a different, slightly different skill set compared to if you're uh, doing uh, checks on, on paper and things like that. You may wonder why is that? And I give you one example. Um, if you're doing an audit um, in a in a corporate company uh, and you're checking on, say, mass products in inventory, um, a general way of doing that would be to do sampling, right? You gr- you grab a sample that is representative of the entire spectrum, and uh, based on the outcome of your sample, you then take an assessment as to what the entirety will be. Yes. Now. Let's assume you get access to the entirety on day one. Why is there a need to do sampling anymore? Why is there a need to do materiality assessments? Materiality is really a convenience thing to say, okay, split the unimportant stuff from the important stuff. But if I have a chance to actually look precisely into every detail, if I could, why would I not be doing that? So there are interesting questions that only arise if if you have the opportunity to actually go as deep as you want,
0: it it also uh, it 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 would make the the annual audit a far more forensic exercise than it is today. It could, it could, but um,
1: in order not to uh, to frighten off uh, your listeners of the podcast, um, um. in in the majority. <laughs> Um, of the environments, I would still, this is unfortunately still very much science fiction. And the reason I'm saying that is, if you really want what I've just tried to elaborate as being the core benefits of going digital and allowing for uh, a deep dive to happen, um, it would basically require a new layout of your general ledger in the accounting. You would have to, if you want to tag information, you would not start from the most aggregated form, but you would need to start from the most disaggregated form, which is probably the individual account, uh, yes. which means that actually you would have to probably reconfigure your entire chart of accounts. And I'm not aware of any organization whatsoever around the globe that has a keen interest in doing that, right? which is why most Companies um, and most le- uh, jurisdictions have opted for a higher level of aggregation and don't go down to the general ledger to the individual accounts. But there is a compromise to be struck here. Uh, the more, the higher up you go towards aggregation, uh, the less you can actually disaggregate if you're using the digital channel, right? So it mm-hmm. is a cost benefit exercise.
0: And uh, I You've been very gracious with your time today, but I'd like to just touch on one more thing before we close. Um, we talk a lot about, uh, in the standard-setting kind of ecosystem, if you like, the, kind of the role of preparers and the role of users of accounts, there's another cohort that's equally important. They're, they're relevant in the digitization space as well as... Uh, uh, Analyzing practice. Uh, what what role would you like to see the academics across the globe have uh, in the process of the ISB during your term? I would think, um, or I would would
1: like to see them um, becoming engaged more, um, by probably working within their domain on a on refocusing part of what they consider to be important. Let me clarify what I mean by that. Traditionally, in the last century, much of the work um, was around normative accounting. It was about academics really doing thought pieces from scratch and trying to come up with um, theoretical answers that would talk to newly-arisen phenomena. Nowadays, it seems that the flavor of the month is all you run empirical researchers. And the the higher the number of companies you survey, the better, because it increases your chance of being listed in one of the academic journals. I think um, I I would see that as having had an unfortunate um, uh, impact on us because we would no longer be informed upstream of areas that we should really concentrate our work on. But it is more about this is what you have done. This is how entities have used your standards. And this is what we can draw from them. So the academic research, rather than being upfront, have really shifted towards the back end in telling us, have the standards worked? as anticipated, as we wanted them to act. Now, don't get me wrong. That is still an important part. So our standard setting exercise doesn't close with developing and finishing work on a standard and issuing that, but we do have um, a post-implementation review. And in that regard, academics, I think, do play a very important role in informing us, OK, what, what have you seen in the environment that you're working on? What have companies done? What evidence can you actually demonstrate to us? So in that regard, I think uh, it is still important, but I would like actually um, also to see more work be done on that normative and on the front end. For instance, take our example from the start, cryptocurrencies. I could mention intangibles as well. Yes. Nobody okay. has a clue as to what we should be doing in terms of categorizing these items in terms of um, measurement approaches that may be suitable in terms of what users would like to see when it comes to reporting on cryptos and on intangibles and all of that we all have to gather the information by ourselves in asking different stakeholders which we would do anyway but it would tremendously be helpful if you really had a thoughtful paper that would talk to these issues and said actually i've set back and have done some research in that area. I've already browsed the existing literature. There seems to be a gap in here. And this is why it is important. And this is where it may have an impact, because that would actually then probably give us a good steer as to, all right, how should we structure a project? Should we be embarking on it?
0: Does this require uh, the tertiary sector, that is, the university sector? Uh, to, to readjust its um, incentive systems, if I can put it that way, yep. to enable you to get back to what, what if I can call this, that, that um, forward-thinking thought leadership that we saw. I guess one of your predecessors, David Tweedy, was a participant in some of that. Uh, in Australia, we've had great names uh, in, in the area of accounting theory, whether it be Ray Chambers or yep. Reg Ginter and others. Uh, all Absolutely. of those, all of those individuals—is that the kind of thing you're looking for?
1: Yeah, I uh, exactly, Tom. I think um, that's exactly what I'm looking uh, looking towards. Now, um, that shouldn't be taken as saying uh, forget about all in- empirical research, right? I don't want this to be become a pendulum that has swung <laughs> one way and now we are going all understand. the way back. Yeah, yeah. But I think we just need to be. Um, uh, appreciative that both ends have a, have an important role to play, right? And empirical stuff really only helps me to a certain degree in informing me what is important, how do I structure my work, um, uh, what new ideas should I actually pursue? It usually is about, okay, something that has happened in the past. I have run a huge sample across industries or jurisdictions or time-wise across years, And it will inform me about a certain effect that was under investigation. That's all good. It's good to know, but it doesn't really provide me an answer okay, what's next? And to the what's next, what what, what lessons do I take out of that and provide suggestions as to how a, a standard setter might address the issues that they have surfaced? Um, could be dealt with. That's really where I see normative thinking come in. So it is really going hand in hand. It's not one or the other.
0: But you would like to see more, more, a little bit more normative uh, sort of thought leadership uh, in the in the mix. Andreas, where do people go to find more information about the ISB uh, and the work of the IFRS Foundation if, they, if they're interested? Um,
1: the, the easiest way to find information about us um, is to go on our website, which um, um, is very not very innovative uh, by, by means of the uh, the URL. It's IFRS.org. Very simple. <laughs> IFRS.org. You go there and you have everything in one place. Now, we've just upgraded our website to enable... Um, um, individual stakeholders to tailor the websites according to their needs. So you could just go there and see what is all available. But if that leads to you becoming completely overwhelmed, there is a way what you can do, you can register for free with a website. And then you can tailor it and actually uh, tailor to I only want to be informed about these projects, or please only notify me if there is a due process document out for consultation, or please um, tell me something that is of interest for academics only. So you can actually push certain sliders and you can tag certain things, and that would recustomize the website according to your needs, and it uh, allows you to receive alerts to, to, to get better information. Um, about podcasts, publications, and all sorts of that.
0: Andreas, uh, thank you so much for for giving so freely and generously of your time for for this particular podcast. I really do appreciate the the, the effort you've put in. My pleasure, Tom. Uh,
1: Thanks for having me. Uh, And all the best uh, for you and your readers. Uh, Stay safe. And... um, was glad to be able to speaking to you. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for joining me and hopefully we can do so again. With pleasure.